This is My Faith Walking Journey podcast with Jim Harrington, episode 14, a conversation with Chuck DeGroat, seminary professor and recent author of the book, Wholeheartedness, Busyness, Exhaustion, and Healing the Divided Self. In this podcast, Jim and Chuck explore topics like spiritual formation, personal transformation, and developing wholeheartedness. For over 25 years, Jim has been serving the church in Houston, Texas by working to mobilize individuals and congregations into collaborative efforts that are designed to serve the common good. In this podcast series, Jim is talking with community leaders in Houston and across the country who are working to build more loving communities as a systemic solution to the big challenges that our communities face today. Now, let's get into this conversation with Dr. DeGroat. I've been conducting a series of conversations with individuals in Houston and from across the country who are working to collaboratively create more healthy communities. We live in an unprecedented uh, time of change, and the solutions that are being offered by institutions of government, education, business, justice, and religion seem increasingly ineffective uh, to meet the challenges that we face. I believe that at the heart of the challenge is learning to develop people who know how to love in a more mature fashion. In our culture, the popular notion of love has been seriously undermined. It's undermined our capacity to solve the problems that we face. We have a very unsustainable notion of love as romance, infatuation, impassioned sex, sentimental words, romantic gift-giving, etc. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those notions as a beginning place, a failure to move beyond them eventually creates cynicism and disillusionment because the promise is so high, but the results are so incomplete. It's never the whole story. Jesus calls us to love, uh, to a mature love of God, self, and others that's based on principled action toward family and friends, but also toward stranger and enemy. And there are people all across the country who seek this and who are working to create more loving communities. Today, I'm really glad to welcome Dr. Chuck DeGroat, who is one of those people. Why don't you take a minute and um, uh, tell us about yourself? Yeah, so um, what can I... What can I say? Uh, I've been married for 21 years to Sarah. Uh-huh. Um, uh, that's been an adventure. As you know, marriage is an adventure. We've had all sorts of um, pain and joy in our marriage. Um, but uh, I think we're more in love now than we've ever been. Um, two great daughters, 14 and 13 years old, Emma and Maggie. Uh, we have uh, one significant thing about us as a family is we've made two cross-country moves in the last seven or eight years. Wow. Um, one from Orlando to San Francisco, where we spent five years. Uh, I was pastoring out in San Francisco, started a counseling center out there, and then out to Holland, Michigan, where I am now, um, where I now teach pastoral care and counseling. Uh, I, uh, yeah, what, what else about me? I, I teach, I, I write, I do a little bit of everything. I'm a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a professor, a therapist, a writer. I still consider myself a pastor. Um, I, th- I think if you take all of it away and ask me if I had to keep one thing, what would it be? Uh, what I love to do probably more than anything else is uh, I love clinical work. I love therapy. Mm. I love sitting with people and listening to their stories. Yeah, when I listen to you describe yourself, uh, I often describe myself as a ministry entrepreneur. I just do a lot of different things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, that sounds like uh, your life as well. So, yeah. uh, so how I came to first know you was there at Western where, you, where you're a professor. Uh, uh, um, and uh, a lot of the conversation that I have had uh, with you and that I've had with you through reading your books has been around uh, the work of spiritual formation. 
Yeah. Um, I wonder if uh, it's that that's really important to me. It seems like it's yeah. really important to the conversation uh, that I'm trying to to foster with people. Uh, I wonder um, what is it in your story uh, that connected you to that work. Uh, why is it that you have given so much of your life to that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I was a pretty typical mid-90s seminary student who was all up in my head until about uh, 1997, the summer of 1997. Um, I, was, I went away to Oxford University to do a summer uh, program to prove myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I did, I did my um, tutorial with a scholar there on New Testament studies and, and – uh, Spent six weeks in the basement of a library, completely disconnected from people, for the most part, um, up in my head. And I, I came home and I knew I knew something was off. And back then I sat down with the then professor of counseling at the seminary that I went to. And uh, he just he read me like a book. Like he knew exactly what was going on and named it, called it out. Said, Chuck, if you continue in this way, you're going to be dangerous to the church. Uh, you're probably already you're a mess and that's probably playing out in your marriage already. Um, and he actually invited me to do the clinical program that was connected with the seminary. So I spent two years in that clinical program. It was transformative. So, so before you tell us about that, I yeah. just want to make sure I heard what you just said. I mean, how I filtered what you just said was that you knew a ton of stuff, Yes, but none of that had gotten translated into <laughs> action. So you knew all the things Jesus taught, but you weren't necessarily able to live those out in day in and day out life. Yeah. And this and this professor saw that and kind of called yeah. it out in you. I, I don't even know if I knew all the things Jesus taught. I knew a lot of Reformed <laughs> theology. Okay. I, I, my head was stuffed with a lot of Reformed theology. Well, so I mean, Let's don't confuse yeah. those Reformed theology and what Jesus taught. <laughs> That's right. When I did my ordination exam, my committee stood up and started singing the doxology. They were they were so proud of me. You know, I had all my facts straight. Right. Um, I did not. There was not one question then on character, on my heart, on transformation, yeah. and so. And this was a very formational counseling program. This was not about behavior modification. This was about um, our hearts. It was about transformation. Um, our, our experiences from the very beginning in this program were about sharing with one another how we experienced one another. And you can just imagine what I heard from other students in the program at that point. Uh, Chuck, we're scared of you. You're arrogant. Um, I don't feel safe with you. I mean, this was just that fall of 1997 and spring of 1998 were for me. Um, I was, I was still pretty young. I was 27, 28 years old around that time. And, and, uh, I was coming undone. Um, and so that was that's what sort of led that was the transformational two years that led me then in ministry to become a pastor of spiritual formation. I had a I had a similar experience when I was about that same age, uh, and though I don't have near the academic credentials that you do, th- that didn't prevent me from being a really arrogant guy. <laughs> yeah. and I did uh, uh, a couple of years of CPE, clinical pastoral education, yeah. at uh, MD Anderson Hospital here in Houston. And um, I wasn't but about a week in, uh, a week into the process before I got the first piece of feedback that, that the people in the group thought I was an arrogant SOB. I mean, that's the language <laughs> that they used. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, nobody ever talked to me that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, it was the beginning of the breaking down of a lot of stuff in me uh, that, that needed to be broken down in order for me to, to see myself as I really was. Yeah, it was really painful, but it was really powerful. Yes, 
that's it. It's it's uh, it's the necessary humiliation, right? That we have to go through, and it, it just so happened that um, I think oftentimes in my clinical practice and my pastoral work, I mean, it's it's people coming in at at, at 38, 40, 45 who end up going through this. It just so happened that I was caught at an earlier age, and I'm I'm really grateful for that. Um, I think what's hard about it is in my first stint in ministry in that first uh, six years at the first church that I served, there was a disconnect between uh, where I was in, in the PCA church that I was in at the time and where the church was, um, for the most part, maybe the leadership, I should say. And that was hard because I was trying to live into this new um, a pathway of transformation and uh, and and I I was butting up against people who uh, did not like the categories I had to offer, did not like the vision of life that I I was espousing. wanted wanted to send people to counseling to get fixed, and then send them back <laughs> fixed, you know, into the church. Right. And so the first years in ministry were um, they, they were they were wonderful and painful all at the same time. Um, and a lot of my ego was continuing to be shattered during that time as well. I mean, I. I took this new transformation thing and I made it into my, um, you know, like I, I became the sage. Now I'm the wise man, right, you know, who's right, figured it out. Right. Um, transformation became the product that the, the new product. Yeah. The church was yeah. Selling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. And, and what was the impact of that? What was the impact of your being the sage and transformation is the new product the church is selling? Uh, yeah. how, how did that go over in your congregation? I mean, this, so this was in the late 90s and early 2000s, and even to, to, to have the title Pastor of Spiritual Formation in the PCA, n- no less, I mean, was, um, I don't know that there was ever a title like that in that denomination. And I had started a, a worship service called Sojourn that was kind of like couches and candles. And, and, uh, and you know, we formed a community then of mostly younger people, but of people who who were willing to engage their brokenness. And I think... Again, it was a, a really beautiful time of connection. I think uh, folks who were part of that community back then would say that it, it was probably uh, the greatest sense of community that they've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I think we were we were you know a bunch of Gen Xers who were uh, were railing against the Boomers and their you know mm-hmm. pop church and their self help strategies and their um, certain theology. And there was an arrogance to that that we we had to sort of uh, I had to come to grips with over the course of time, and I was fired from that position. That was the next oh. maybe significant humiliation. I don't, uh, I don't know that part of your story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was hard, uh, and it was probably it was probably uh, necessary on their end and my end too. I mean, it, we were we were probably we probably had to come to the end, and that was that was the beginning of the end of my. Um, time in that denomination as well. Hmm. But, um, but that was hard because, uh, I, I'm, I was a young man still at that point And, and to be told that you're fired is, is just, I mean, they didn't even put it in those words. They, they told me they were letting me go, you know, but I mean, I was being fired, right. Clean, right. clean out your desk, you know, you're gone this week. And so how old were you? I was at that time. That was in 2003. I was 33. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. Well. Which was convenient because I could fit that into, you know, Jesus was crucified at 33 and, and it, it fit into a really nice martyr complex yeah. that I had at the time. Yep. Uh. I, can, I can see where that narrative goes. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, how'd you recover from that? I, 
I did not recover well. I did not deal with that well. I think um, I had mentors and friends who I, I went to in the midst of that who um, processed with me, but I think that a lot of, uh, in fact, my wife and I were just talking about this the other night over dinner. Uh, I think that from about 2003 to about 2013, there was a kind of dark night of the soul period where um, it felt like God was very distant. Um, I went back to some old strategies. I reinvented some old strategies for doing life from a, a posture of control and self-protection. Mm-hmm. Um, I still looked like I was vulnerable because I could play the vulnerability game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was helpful to clients during that time. And I, you know, I, I spent a little time uh, as a therapist. I was uh, I was teaching a bit at the seminary that I uh, that I was at, and then I transitioned to San Francisco. And I think. I think that a lot of people would say, we experience you as vulnerable, Chuck. Uh, it feels like you're more honest than most people. But I, I know that during that time, there was, uh, there was a lot of pain. And I was just trying to, I was trying to, um, I was just trying to deal with it in, in, in all my old ways. Yeah. 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 So was there, a, was there a turning point? Was there a point where uh, you finally got this, that what it means to be a fully human or, or has it just yeah. been an ongoing series of experiences? Yeah. there. I think there were a number of things that began to happen when I transitioned to San Francisco. I think the first thing was that I was out of a, a system that was kind of triggering for me, and I was in a new place. Um, um, I, I met some colleagues who were affirming. It's just good to be affirmed. It's good okay, to be in right. a place where they say, you know, we like what you're doing. Do more of it. Um, that was huge. Um I think relationship, this is just to show my card, I think relationship heals. You know, I don't think books heal. I, mm-hmm. I think uh, to be in the context of healing relationships, um, I entered therapy at that time, and um, I discovered internal family systems therapy. I don't know if that's on your radar, but I, mm-hmm. I went to an internal family systems therapist and started dealing with all my parts, <laughs> realizing yep, yep, yep. how polarized I was inside, you know. The little little Chucky hiding under mm-hmm. a table, you know, and and really angry Chucky like beating him, and yeah. uh, you know we did a lot of work during I, that time. I used, I used to call that the committee in my head. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. make any decision or go anything without the committee having a conversation. Yeah, yeah, and that committee, I think, for a long time was just loud and um, had sort of taken taken over my my being at some level, you know, and. Um, I think some of this came with the discovery, uh, rediscovery of contemplative prayer and contemplative practices. Um, that was something I was introduced to actually in the late nineties and, um, rediscovered that I think in, 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 and through the writings and and listening to Richard Rohr, there was some of that. that One of my favorites. Yeah. Rohr and Paul D'Arcy and Jim Finley. I've gotten to know a little Mm -hmm. bit and others like that were, were significant, but, um, it's tough because you know San Francisco is a is a frantic, um, fragmented kind of city, and I, I think that in some ways, while living in the city was exciting, I, I don't think it, the environment was as conducive to the kind of soul work that I needed to do. I was uh, redoing a spiritual formation ministry there. I was starting a counseling center. I was starting a, a program with Western Seminary called Newbegin House of Study. I, like I was writing. Mm-hmm just the busy pastor. Right. And so it's hard to do soul work in a period like that. Yeah. And so then where does that story go? 
let's see if we can land the plane. To get that. <laughs> let's that, land the plane. It's a great story. I mean, I'm really connected to it, and I think listeners are going to be really uh, yeah. uh, uh, appreciative of, of that kind of authenticity and vulnerability. Yeah. Where does that story end? Um, well, in some ways, it's still going. I mean, I, I think that a significant piece of this uh, in and through the work of, of counseling and some of the healing that went on in San Francisco is that um, I was able to listen again, pay attention again, and I sort of found my center. And it was on a, like a wintry night. I was staying in, in a hotel here in Holland, Michigan, that I had the sense that um, well, the counseling professor had left Western Seminary. And I had the sense that that this could be a place where I'm, I might land, that there might be a season for me now in my mid-40s where I could transition from, from what felt to me like very busy ministry into a season of, of training other pastors. Mm-hmm. And, and there was something in that conversation, and, and the story is too long to tell, but there was something of, like I was just, like there was a recovery of my soul, my, my sense of uh, vocation and purpose. And um, like I felt like it was in my own skin again. <laughs> If that makes sense, does, yeah. and and so I was as I was processing that, it just felt like th- this is um, this is where God is calling me. It, it, it made no sense to anyone that God would call call me from San Francisco to Holland, Michigan, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but to be in a place where I'm not in charge of people, I'm a junior professor, you know, um, I, I I don't have to to go out and do all these things that I was doing to start the things that I was involved in out in San Francisco. I can simply just pour into the lives of students. Um, and that's been a really great uh, vocational transition. Yeah, that's great, Chuck. That's a, really such a great story. Um, and I, I think the answers to the question that I want to ask next are in that story. Yeah. You, you know I'm doing a series of podcasts. I, I, I just have come to the really deep conviction that, the, that loving people the way that Jesus teaches us to love is a systemic, like yeah. uh, solution to so much of what, what not like it's magic fairy dust. Like loving like Jesus loves is going to make all the problems go away. But so many of the problems that we face uh, um, are there because we've just lost the capacity to love really well. Yeah. And so I, I wonder, in the work of spiritual formation, what what would you say to the folks who are listening about? Um, uh, about how you develop people, how you develop yourself into a more loving yeah. person, how you develop people who can love in that mature kind of way, where you don't just love yourself or your your the people who are like you, but you love to learn you learn to love strangers and enemies and uh, you know people <laughs> yeah. who who really just make you want to either hate or run. Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you do that? What do you, what have you learned about that journey? I, you know, I still my class, one of my classes the other day, I, I still feel like I, I, it's kind of strange to say that I am just still tipping, uh, dipping my toe in those waters, you know, like I've learned what love is not in a sense that maybe that's the first half of life's journey. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm making all the mistakes and I'm, I'm beginning, I'm beginning to taste what love is and that, and that's required, um, I think that's required some some pain and some humiliation. When I look back at my story, and there's more to my story that I haven't told, there's been some pain and abuse <laughs> in my past, and uh, it's been unearthing some of that. I, the way I like to describe it, or uh, is like this: we we learned at some point to disconnect. We're made in and for connection, mm-hmm. and we learned in and through our family experience to disconnect in some way, and we learned strategies. To, to get the kind of um, substitute connection that we need, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've got um, 
So, so, Dozens. So I just want to say it in my own story. Yeah. I grew up in a home where there was violence in my home, uh, where I experienced that on a, a not a daily basis, but but occasionally. And the the disconnect for me, the way that I learned to connect was I became a a master taskmaster. Yeah. Give me a job. And I mean, everywhere I've ever worked, people have said, man, you're the best guy we've ever had working at this yeah. job. Um, and there, there was a part of that that felt really good to hear. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but it kept me from the deeper level of connection yeah. to myself yeah. uh, and to the people who were around me. Um, yeah. and, and I, I, so everybody doesn't have violence in their home, you know, That's right. <laughs> some people yeah. just have normal lives with good, good people where they just get hurt somewhere along the way. That's right. Yeah. And when they get hurt, they, they, they do the same thing that I did. They develop strategies, as you said, yeah. for, for getting what we call getting legitimate needs met in illegitimate right. kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's exactly it. And I learned, um, I learned a bunch of those, right? I mean, I think we all have a bunch of those. Yeah. And I, they, they tend to sort of repeat over the course of life. I mean, my, my wife is very aware of these, right? And, uh, and I think there's a gradual relaxing of those strategies. I, I mean, I wish, um, I wish it was an overnight thing, yeah. you know, but yeah. um, I think uh, I'm learning surrender. I'm learning vulnerability. Um, these things I can talk about, but they're, they're excruciating to do at some level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talk. I, I would say I talk a better game about this stuff than I than I actually live. And it's been being in relationship with um, with some people who are safe, some friends who are safe, where I'm learning to love, where I'm learning to give, where I'm learning to surrender, where I'm learning to not fear the other as much. Um, there are, there are multiple levels to that. I mean, I think being being involved in a, the conversation of, of uh, systemic racism here at the seminary, mm-hmm. and, and my eyes being open to that in new ways over the last two years has taught me to love in some new ways. Um, but but it's a constant exposure to to uh, strategies that I've employed very well over the years. That strategies actually that people like a lot and they want me to employ. Right. That I, you, I'm, you I'm learning. Rewar- to, you get rewarded for using them. Yeah. 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 I, I wonder. I wonder what you would say about the uh, about the importance of um, of vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, about the importance of having a place where you can tell the truth about how those strategies, uh, though you get rewarded for them, that they don't produce the deep connection that we're made for. Yeah. I mean, I really feel like vulnerability is is the antidote to this disconnection that I talked about, this disconnection that I learned at a very early age. Um, And the disconnection, I think, in in a way that I was, uh, after I was fired, that I perpetuated with some new strategies, you know, over the course of almost a decade from, in my mind, 2003 to about 2013. Um, It took... Uh, risking telling a few people, mm-hmm. um, not just my therapist, but some others right, too. Right. Um, In fact, I think it's important. I mean, so I know you're a therapist, and I, I, I yeah. refer people to therapists all the time. Yeah. But but when I'm paying somebody to listen to me, there's something yeah. different when I when I tell a friend or a family member uh, that you know uh, they don't have anything in the game except the yeah. relationship. Yeah. There's something that yeah. happens there that's, that's right. so important. I mean, people thought after that experience, people thought I was incredibly resilient. It, it's interesting. <laughs> you know, I, I was teaching a, a full load at the seminary. I was counseling um, probably 10 to 
12 clients a week. I was supervising students who were learning to be clinicians. I was doing a kind of online distance learning PhD program. And, and people thought, wow, Chuck is just, he's so productive. Maybe a little bit like you, you know, Superman. that's the strategy that I learned. Superman. Yeah. And in and, and some ways, people still say that. I, one of my bosses here the other day said, you're the most productive member of the faculty. I mean, you're writing and you're... I now don't hear that. Maybe even two or three years ago, I heard that as a compliment. Now I say, oh, no, okay, that needs to change. And that comes at a cost, I think, mm-hmm. to some degree. I, I don't know what the cost will be vocationally for me, but I know that to, to live with this vulnerability means that I can't continue to live out of those strategies. So part of what I've heard you say is that we need a community, a safe community of people where we can tell the truth about how the strategies learned in the first half of life don't produce connection and how, <clears throat> how lonely that is and how frustrating that is. A part of what I hear you saying is that that we can't live frantically busy lives that start at 5 o'clock in the morning and end at 10 o'clock at night that are filled with appointments and noise and all of that kind of stuff. That there's got to be a way to, if we're going to learn to be loving people, there's got to be some space yeah. uh, in, in our lives for self-care and for reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And And I think that's a that's a pretty significant conversation. I love this poet David White. I'm sure you know David White, right? Yep. Uh, David White tells this story uh, of of hearing from a, a good friend that the antidote to exhaustion is not rest. The antidote to exhaustion is wholeheartedness. Mm-hmm. That was a big insight for me because I, as a you know typical reformed young reformed boy, I thought you know six days I labor and work my ass off, and then the seventh day I plot myself in front of the TV and watch football, you know, (laughs) and, um, that's not rest. You know, I think we, we misunderstand rest. It it became for me learning how to be present in the moment, even during the six days, even in my work, uh, even as I'm flying from one place to another to do a talk, even as I'm standing up in front of people doing a lecture or talk or preaching a sermon, um, that I would be as present to my wife and to my kids as I am to my class, as I am to my clients. And so it becomes more about the moment, you know, Mm -hmm. the present moment Mm -hmm. and less about some sort of strategy to, to rest, you know, Um, there are plenty of strategies to rest. I could give people a list of things to do, uh, ways to, Mm -hmm. and and I do, you know, ways to, to set boundaries. And I I talk about this stuff. All those things are important. All all that's important, but, but it's not what we're talking about. (laughs) No, no, it's, it's, it's something you discover more in, in the moment, you know, and the, as, as you become aware of where you are, as, as you realize that you haven't taken a breath in about three days, you know, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes for me, that's a, just a walk across Hope College's campus here, mm-hmm. breathing and waking up. Okay, there's a tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here are my feet walking right mm-hmm. now, you know, right. um, I can see a butterfly, like I'm back in my own body, I'm back in my own mm-hmm. skin. And in that moment, and I know you've experienced this. It's like, oh, I can rest. Here I am again, okay? I haven't been present for the last three weeks, but here I am right now, and this is a good place to start, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. So um, uh, is there anything else you'd say? So we talked about vulnerability. We talked about yeah. uh, about um, uh, creating space for being present, uh, for yeah. learning to be present in all the spaces. Um, yeah. Anything else you'd say about? Uh, I mean, I, I know in a thirty-minute podcast we can't <laughs> give a, yeah. a comprehensive class on how to yeah. become loving people, but anything, any other big thing you'd say? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I've been thinking now for some time about this whole idea of wholeness or wholeheartedness. Mm-hmm. And I, you, you've probably been influenced like I have by Brene Brown's work. She's it, right yeah. there in Houston, right? Yeah. I watched that video back in 2009, and it was it opened up some of these categories for me. There are categories that were there from back in my clinical training, but I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about what wholeheartedness is in recent times, this idea that, of experiencing oneness and worthiness mm. in Christ, you know, and more and more, you know, I come from a tradition that does a pretty good job of beating people up mm. and I still consider myself reformed. I'm in a, a, a great tradition, sure. a great Christian tradition, right? Like the, they're good people. They've done. They've said lots of really important, good things. That's my disclaimer for the mm-hmm. podcast. <laughs> um, but we, boy, we do a really good job of beating people up. Um, but beyond guilt, to shame. You know, you're bad. You're as bad yeah. as you can be. Yeah. And I think that's a really toxic message. And I think the gospel uh, shows us that we're worthy. Right. You know, that God loves us. Because he sees an inherent worthiness. And whenever I say that, I get in trouble. An inherent goodness and worthiness. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's the first message of the Bible. It's the first, oh, that's it's, right. it's the, the yeah. first description of the story of, starts. Of that's right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, we st- in my tradition, we tend to start with Genesis 3. Right. And um, I, I think it's done a, a great disservice. And so that a lot of the work that I've been doing around this, to be honest with you, is, is to be sort of like undoing that, mis- that, that uh, message. Um, which is so ingrained. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, Brene Brown has also had a lot of impact on me. The, the work I do with the faith walking community here, we use a lot of her material. When I first watched her podcast, did you say that was in 2009? I think the first yeah. one was in 2009. So, so I, yeah. I, I, I watched that and, and it was my first real introduction to shame. And, and uh, so I come out of the Southern Baptist tradition. Yeah. And I saw that and I thought, you know, I don't, I don't think I have any shame. <laughs> and then, as I kept reading, it's because you're an Enneagram Eight. No, it's but well, right? that, that's part of it. So I'm an Enneagram Eight. Part of it is because uh, what I began to recognize was that I there's this story about these two fish who are swimming through the ocean, yeah. and yeah. A, a big a, two little fish, and this big old fish comes swimming along, and the little fish, the big fish says to the little fish, "So where are you guys going?" And the little fish says, "We're looking for the ocean." Uh, and they didn't realize that they were immersed in it. What what I began to realize was that I was so immersed in a world of shame that it was how both my family and my community and my congregation, it was the way they managed behavior. Yeah, it was where right. I learned to manage, not yeah. a, uh, to shame myself, yeah. to shame my kids, to shame yeah. other people. That was the way you got people to do what you wanted. And and for me, it was, it was like this eye-opening experience yeah, of, that's saying, so good. of saying, Wow, that's 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 just the lens that I've seen the world through. That's right. Yeah, it was so this lens, this lens of I am not enough, right, you know, and right. so I've got to do more. I've got to be more. I've got to, and it's just exhausting, just exhausting, it right? Is, so because you're always out there hustling to prove yourself, uh, hustling to get, you know, to to get approval. Um, and to be that. honest with you, I mean, this I was talking to my class about this yesterday. We perpetuate this, I think, to exactly. some extent, exactly. our theological training. Exactly. You know, exactly. Uh, and and it becomes a meritocracy, and it's it, it's exhausting. You yeah. know, so. Um, we've got a lot of work to do to undo this. We do. Well, the thing that I'm really clear about at this moment in the podcast is that we didn't. We need to have another conversation or two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I want to, before we end, uh, uh, this has been really good, really helpful. I've really appreciated yeah. your your time. Uh, yeah. you, you're the author of a couple of books, and you've just yeah. got a new one that comes out. Uh, yeah. That has just come out. Would you tell us about it? 
Yeah, it's called wholeheartedness, right? So um, busyness, uh, what is it? Busyness, exhaustion, and I don't know what the subtitle is. It's um, the the good news about that is now this is my third book, so I'm starting to get over the whole book thing. Right, right. <laughs> the first two, there was so much anxiety. This one was a, a my, kind of a, written out of this journey. You know, it's um, uh, you know I take some of the insights of psychology and interpersonal neuro- neurobiology and sociology. I, I talk some about how how we understand wholeheartedness and what's wrong in our culture, but I move into um, Contemplative practices. I think there's a lot of value in the last three chapters where there's some practices that I invite people into to become present to their own lives and their own stories and um, to the way God really does the kind of deep um, soul work that we need. So it's not just a head book, right? right. Here's how we define wholeheartedness. It, it gets us into practicing wholeheartedness. Well, that's, so. part, that's part of what I love about the book is yeah. – uh, so Brene does a great job. Uh, Kurt Thompson does a great job yeah. of describing yeah. all of what, what happens both interpersonally and, and, and in, the, in, the, in the biology of the brain. They do all yeah. of that, and they help give us a lot of insight. But what I love about your book is it takes it, – it, it captures all of that, and then it moves us to practice. And, and the thing that I'm – you know. The thing that I would add to what what we talked about, what it looks like to learn to love, is that you've got to practice, practice, practice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that you've yeah. got to have behaviors uh, that you're engaged in that you're not very good at at the beginning, yeah. but that you keep practicing that produce loving people. And I love that about your book is how it helps us uh, with, with a set of practices that lead to that kind of outcome that we're talking yeah. about. Good. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. I mean, that's... That's kind of it for me at this point, you know. I don't know if I have another book in me uh, ever, but but uh, that's that's what I'm trying to live right now on fits and starts. Well, so for our listeners, let's just make sure it's wholeheartedness, busyness, exhaustion, and healing the divided self. That's it. Yeah, it's, you got you, it. You can get it at Amazon. <laughs> the the paperback yeah. is is about ten dollars, and the Kindle yes. version is about eight dollars. And yeah. uh, I just want to encourage all of you who are listening to. Uh, purchase if, if if this topic interests you, this yeah. book will be really really helpful to you. Yeah. Chuck, thanks so much for taking time yeah. to have this conversation today. I I appreciate you from a distance. Have yeah. had a little bit of opportunity to interact with you. Your 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 books are uh, I recommend them all the time. Yeah. This this is my favorite one, and uh, uh, so uh, thanks for taking time. Thanks for listening to this conversation on building loving communities. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd give us a review on iTunes and share it with your community. This helps more people find us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all other episodes in this series on Jim's blog, jimtherrington.com. Thanks for listening.